Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. My guest today is an internationally recognized leader in the care and treatment of patients with Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. He's a clinician, a teacher, and a researcher who has authored over 300 scientific articles and co-authored several books. Dr. Konstantin Liketsos is the chair of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins Baby Medical Center, where he also directs the Memory and Alzheimer's Treatment Center. Dr. Liketsos, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Jan. I'm, well, I feel quite welcome. <laughs> now, I don't know if you remember this, but when we first met in early 2011, I brought my mom in, who was then 82 years old, and um, after reviewing all kinds of records and such, you you took me into a room and you gave me the, your diagnosis that my mom had early onset Alzheimer's. And I was, quite frankly, alarmed. I mean, I knew she had issues with her memory, but I think I had sort of bought into this stigma around the disease because I didn't really know much about it. Um, and I get kind of weepy and you gave me a tissue, which was so sweet. <laughs> and you said, you know, let's bring in your mom. And you said, can I use the A word? <laughs> and I just thought, how, how perfect. I mean, that says it all. But I guess my question is, you know, why is talking about Alzheimer's such a stigma still? And is it aging in general that we're squeamish about? Or, or is it really the whole idea of Alzheimer's and memory? Yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful question, and I'm not sure I can give you a um, absolute scientific answer, but I do think there are several factors that contribute. Uh, one is is that it is a disorder of the mind at one level. Uh, obviously, the disorder of the mind happens because the brain is uh, doing badly mm-hmm. and uh, being damaged by a disease, but nevertheless, the experience is in the mind, mm-hmm. and it affects our mental faculties, and more importantly, it affects who we are uh, at a very core level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the other reason is because at this point, whether it be through the media or through personal experience, all of us have seen what the disease does to people mm-hmm. and how devastating it can be. Uh, I think whether you want to call that stigma or just fear, uh, mm-hmm. either way, that really contributes to why people uh, have such a hard time sometimes uh, hearing about it when they're diagnosed or when a loved one is diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Well, then, if, you know, it sounds then like you're talking about a media representation, which is sort of an almost an ex- extreme of, of a kind. And I know that there's a spectrum here. So, you know, let's define it. I mean, what is... Alzheimer's exactly? How long has it been around? And how can the average person tell the difference between just forgetfulness associated with aging and and Alzheimer's? Alzheimer's is a um, brain disease. It's uh, a degenerative disease of the brain. We use the term degenerative because the brain um, is slowly dying off as the disease progresses. Mm -hmm. Because it's a disease of the brain, uh, the symptoms that it causes are in the mental life of people. 
And the kinds of symptoms that it causes depend on how it's spreading throughout the brain. Mm -hmm. So most commonly, it begins in parts of the brain that serve memory. And so the earliest symptoms in most people are memory loss. Mm -hmm. We're also recognizing, though, that it might, in other people, start other places. And so they might get other symptoms, such as changes in personality, irritability, depression. Mm -hmm. Over time, as it spreads to other parts of the brain, um, it leads to additional symptoms and then also to disability. So in earlier um, stages, there are mostly symptoms that are problematic that people can compensate with either on their own or with help from others. But slowly over time, it uh, functionally devastates uh, the person's ability to live independently, handle money, drive, uh, and eventually, as the person becomes very disabled, they, in the advanced severe stages, if they live that long, uh, can become bed-bound and be unable to feed, uh, walk, uh, retain continence, and so forth. Um, go ahead. No, I was, that's curious because uh, it sounds like the, uh, some people can get it sooner than others. And um, you can have symptoms at even a later stage, and it can still be early onset. Um, does it does it does it differ that in that? Do some people get it sooner than others? Um, so I think you're referring to the age at which people first get it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a fair bit of variability. Uh-huh. Uh, about thirty years ago. Uh, we did not think of um, uh, certain types of dementia after age 70 as the same as similar dementias uh, earlier than age, I guess, might probably was 60 at the time. But nowadays we recognize that it's the same disease happening at a different age. Uh, the major difference with people who get it at younger ages, and we have evidence of people getting it into their 30s or 40s, that's very rare, wow. but it can happen. The major difference there is that the genetic influence on getting the disease is much stronger at younger ages. Mm -hmm. And also, as people get older, the contribution of what we see in the brain that we call Alzheimer's to the overall debility of the person gets less. And there are other brain pathologies that emerge later in life, and we're talking 80, 90, uh, 100-year-olds. In that setting, the disease we call Alzheimer's tends to be quite widely present, uh, but there are other conditions that add in to make uh, dementia happen and be worse. Mm -hmm. So you asked the question about how long it's been around. It it is actually cited in our ancestor Hippocrates. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Greek term that's used uh, for senility is is moria Mm -hmm. or um, being childlike or or Mm baby-like. So it's been around forever. What has uh, changed is that now we have more people living into the age of risk. Mm -hmm. So as we have more 80, 90, 70-year-olds living in quite good health in many instances, uh, then it's in those ages that the disease is most likely to happen. And so we're starting to see very large numbers of people suffering from Alzheimer's dementia. So it sounds like you're saying that even though we might see it as being on the rise, that might be connected to the fact that we're just living longer so there are more of us that are the aging population is getting greater. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. What's on the rise is the number of older people, not the rate. Right. Uh, And in fact, there's a little bit of evidence that the percent of people, if you will, to put it loosely, 
at a given age, say 85 in Western countries, seems to be going down a little bit. Hmm. Not enough to really change the gist of the counts, but it's somewhat hopeful that all of the efforts we've done in cardiovascular prevention, et cetera, is somewhat generalizing to the brain, and therefore the count, the, the rates are going down, although the counts aren't because we have more people living to uh, older ages. Mm-hmm. So um, let's for a moment talk about the treatments that uh, have, have been offered. Uh, I know there's, there, are, there are pills <laughs> that one can try. Um, the idea, I thought it was interesting that you co-authored a book called Treating Dementia, Do We Have a Pill for It? <laughs> because it seems like we, we, we look for pills for everything. Um, but but my question, I guess, would be how effective are these drugs that are designed to combat what I understand is an, an amyloid protein buildup in the brain? Um, how effective are those drugs, and uh, what's the big thing now in terms of what researchers are doing in terms of how how we treat the disease? Yeah, so I, I would like to send out a message of hope, and hopefully you as a carer can echo that to Mm -hmm. some extent, Mm -hmm. which is that even though this is not a disease we can cure at this point in the sense of taking it away so that it's not there anymore, uh, the last 10, 15, 20 years have clearly shown that there are better and less good ways to look after people with the disease and their families so that we can really change the life of people with dementia and their families if we provide what we call dementia care, which is a broad systematic effort to support the person and the caregiver. Uh, You mentioned drugs. Uh, There are kind of three ways to think about drugs in dementia and Alzheimer's. One is that first question is uh, how how many non-brain-related drugs should the person be on? Mm -hmm. It's not unusual that we see patients with dementia who are taking too many medications Mm -hmm. for various and sundry reasons. Mm -hmm. And these medications all add uh, some disturbance to the brain disease that the person has. So Mm -hmm. in terms of medicines, first we try to minimize uh, as much as we can. And often we talk about taking people off drugs that are sometimes used to lower cholesterol Mm -hmm. uh, or to provide aggressive management of blood pressure because in the age group that people with dementia live, that kind of aggressive management isn't necessarily needed. The second set of drugs uh, are the ones that we use to um, treat some of the memory and cognitive symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. The FDA has approved three drugs from one class one group, and another drug, one other drug. So there are four. I'll refer to the brand names. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Aricept, mm-hmm. Razadine, and Exelon. Those are all drugs that boost a brain chemical called acetylcholine and transiently improve memory in some people, memory and other symptoms. And the other drug is Namenda, and Namenda has some role in some people probably in moderate or severe stages in improving functioning and perhaps delaying the course of the illness. So that's the second set of drugs. These are FDA-approved drugs developed for Alzheimer's with very modest effects that have a small role, but a role nevertheless in uh, treating people with Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. The third are drugs that we use um, to help, in some instances, treat some of the non-memory symptoms. Mm -hmm. So over the course of illness, even though we think of Alzheimer's as a memory illness, over the course of illness, pretty much everybody gets uh, these non 
cognitive symptoms or neuropsychiatric symptoms as we call them. Symptoms include dysphoria, depression, mm-hmm. irritability, agitation, delusions, hallucinations, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So those symptoms, as I said, one or more occur in pretty much everybody. Uh, they also are very troubling, and in occasional situations, we are not able to manage them without medications. Mm-hmm. And so in those situations, there we use uh, medicines. Um, unfortunately, there's been less research in how best to use medicines for those symptoms. Uh, last five years, there's a big growth in that research, but still we're far behind in what we need to do. Much of the use of medicines in that setting is empirical or, if you will, is, uh, is used um, in sort of a trial and error fashion mm-hmm. with some good clues about what to use. The big caution here uh, is that some of the medicines work. Uh, some of the symptoms are so bad and they can lead to dangerousness. Uh, patients can get hurt. Caregivers can get hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in those cases, it makes sometimes more sense to take somewhat bigger risks with these medicines. So one class of these medicines called antipsychotics, mm-hmm. these were medicines developed for schizophrenia and related conditions. Uh, one class is relatively effective, so it can quiet or improve the symptoms without necessarily creating sedation or making people zombie-like or sleepy-like. But because the age group is vulnerable, uh, there is a slight increase in risk of uh, strokes and death mm-hmm. with those matters. Mm-hmm. So we're very cautious about using them, and we only use them in situations where uh, there's real dangerousness, and we use them for as short a uh, period as possible. So the caution here is to be cognizant of these risks, uh, and uh, especially in nursing home environments where I think it's still true that about a quarter or so of people with dementia still receive these medicines at hmm. a much higher rate than uh, those of us who think about this a lot wow. uh, believe should be there. Mm-hmm. In fact, in Britain, they've reduced that rate by, uh, I believe in Britain, they're um, close to 8 or 10% use. So clearly it can be done, but in the U.S. Uh, we have not done it. Mm-hmm. So that's the deal with medicines. Mm-hmm. When you talk about um, nursing facilities, my immediately I think about the cost of care uh, and what is covered by Medicare versus long-term care costs and how uh, not, not just nursing homes but assisted living facilities, how they are addressing this patient population and, and, and in your view where they're falling short and what are they doing right. I mean, we hear a lot of horror stories, but there's also a lot of positives and you know, I, I, I've, my mom's in a uh, re- retirement uh, facility, and it was it was only about a year ago that they gave eight week dementia training to the entire staff, just so that they were sensitive to the fact that there was a segment of the population that was affected by memory loss of some kind. Not not to say Alzheimer's necessarily, but um, can you can you sort of speak to the issue of long term care costs and how how uh, facilities are are addressing this population? Yeah, that's a, a great question and very controversial. So let's separate out nursing homes from assisted living. Mm-hmm. Um, nursing homes are very different places than they were thirty or forty years ago. Uh, now they play a major role in rehabilitation. So people who are coming out of a surgery or a long hospital stay who need to have physical therapy and so forth to rehabilitate will often spend weeks in a nursing home getting better but then go home. 
that is generally paid for by Medicare or other insurances. Mm -hmm. Uh, The more traditional, what you might call uh, long-term care in a nursing home, where somebody actually moves there to live, Mm -hmm. uh, about three-quarters of the time that's the case because they have dementia of some kind, Alzheimer's or another dementia. Um, and uh, indeed, the facilities are, are uh, not uh, terribly sophisticated, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that actually we think is one of the reasons why use of those antipsychotic drugs is so high. Mm-hmm. I'll come to cost in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, assisted living, on the other hand, is, is a lower level of care. Well, we know that two-thirds to three-quarters of all residents have a memory disorder, uh, about two-thirds um, have mm. dementia, and about another 10% or so have uh, milder memory symptoms that usually develop dementia uh, after they move in there. Um, and so dementia is the major player in assisted living, mm-hmm. and yet uh, there's a, a lot of variability uh, about how assisted living facilities look after people with dementia. There is a, a strong history in assisted living that it came out of the hospitality industry uh-huh. so that these are, if you will, more elaborate hotels of sorts, uh-huh. and therefore the health care of people is, is not a concern uh, uh-huh. of the operators of the facility. Of course, that's completely unrealistic because the main reason people go there is because of health conditions. Right, but that's so such an interesting hard. point because it's exactly the kind of facility my mom is, is in, but I know it is one of the last of its kind. And they're struggling, I think, with that, whereas some of the more recently built facilities are much more clinical and less appealing, in a way, I think, for family members. But but I, it's a really interesting point that you make about the history of the hospitality services. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, that's I'm, I'm glad you do, and I, I think it's always helpful for to have a personal experience note like you introduced uh, just now with your mom. Um, so the, the costs are huge. Uh, I honestly, in a brief conversation, I'm not sure that I could tell you exactly what they are, but the the projection uh, uh, right now uh, is that on an annual basis, cost of care for Alzheimer's costs uh, uh, probably hundreds of billions of dollars per year already. Um, And uh, as the number of cases with Alzheimer's grows, uh, some projections suggest that it could be a trillion dollars a year. Uh, around wow. 2050 or so. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's uh, you know that's uh, that's mm-hmm. no small potatoes. Wow, that's uh, a huge number. But that uh, that are some people's projections. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges is well, what, what counts in a cost? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people in some instances they just want to count the medicines and the doctor visits and the hospital care and the MRIs. Other people, uh, cost of care, want to count the uh, nursing homes and assisted livings on the custodial care, the aides, et cetera. And then yet other people also in cost of care want to count the time that family members Mm -hmm. like you uh, spend in providing unpaid care and the loss of productivity. Um, So Mm -hmm. if you're a caregiver to your mother, uh, you know, uh, you're not earning an income in some instances. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that those dollars would count as cost of care in some people's equations. Mm Well, that brings me to another uh, interesting point, I think, which I, I think you advocate, this real balance between cure and care. And I think that 
um, you you are sort of an advocate of, of of home care and improving the the life of of of, of the patient in in a home setting. And um, I I think that's one of the rewards. It has been a reward for me. I lived with my mom for three years, not necessarily intentionally, <laughs> but it turned out that way. And for me, it was such an eye opener. And you know. Even though I, I learned that even though she had lost a lot, there was still a lot left. And so rather than focusing on what's gone, I think it's, for me, been an issue of focusing on what's left and really, really um, cherishing that. And I wonder if you can speak to, maybe this can be a takeaway, a call to action for families. Uh, what can families do to care for their elders in a sort of, in a, in a more, I don't know, humane isn't the right word maybe, but in a real personal way that gives both, both the caregiver and the elder person some, some satisfaction. Yeah, I, I, I love it that you bring up that example. And in, in fact, my uh, father-in-law years back uh, was looking after his mother who had dementia, uh, Alzheimer's type, um, and he he was a, a professor and a philosopher and a theologian. And in one of our conversations, when I was going into this field, he, he made a point to me that is very akin to what you just said, which is you know older people he said are, are frequently interested in knowing what purpose they serve in life because that's one of the things that keeps them going. Well, in his case, he viewed it that even with dementia his mother was serving a purpose for him uh, because it was an opportunity to have a, a, a relationship evolve to one under different circumstances. Uh, and it was also an opportunity for uh, his children uh, and grandchildren to see how he was taking care of his mother. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think uh, that is clearly the silver lining uh, is that even with dementia, Life under altered circumstances can be of really good quality. It's just different. Uh, people try very hard to sometimes pretend that dementia isn't there, and they try to have the life they had. And that's usually a recipe that does not work. Um, so I, I'm totally with you there, and that's why I keep making the message for me is care is possible. Care can be very effective, very successful. Uh, and because we're not going to see a cure, in my view, for a couple decades at least, uh, we're talking uh, tens of millions of people and their families will be affected, and we're simply not doing enough in preparing or making scientific the process of providing care. Uh, and that, for me, is the balance of care-cure, mm -hmm. is we have an absolute obligation to make sure that what we know how to do today is as widely used as possible. Uh, and by the way, your point about home care is critical because I, I think that we can do it in the homes, especially with more technology becoming available, and that's going to save money. Uh, that's going to save money from hospital uh, admissions. It's going to save money from nursing home admissions uh, and so forth. So home-based dementia care, uh, in my view, is where we need to go. Mm -hmm. Well, that that's just all wonderful to hear and, and really inspiring. <laughs> um, okay. If there's any takeaway that I think people can can get, can get from this, I I love to hear you know uh, from you. If there's a last thought that you have uh, that you'd like to impart, what family members can do. Uh, if there's anything else you'd like to add, please feel free. Otherwise, we'll let go. 
Okay, so let me just say I, I'm privileged to be part of a team here at Johns Hopkins uh, developing a program called Mind at Home, Maintaining Independence at Home. It's a, a process of uh, looking after people in their homes when they have dementia. And we've already shown in early research that uh, it helps people stay uh, in their homes by as many as, uh, as nine months longer. Uh, and also with improved life quality. It's one of the very few worldwide studies that shows that life quality in Alzheimer's can be improved, not just decline less fast, which is often an objective. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the, the take-home message for me is, is, uh, is look for these kinds of programs locally. Look for programs that are cutting edge and that are um, willing, prepared, able, and effective in providing home-based dementia care because uh, that, for me, is going to be the wave of the future. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is done in the home. It just means that the home and the family and the patient become the base or the center of care, and the care system provides uh, a wraparound capability starting in the home, but it might involve coming into a clinic or going other places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I think we can do it. I know. <laughs> it's I think a lot, so, too, yes. It's, it's a lot of work, but um, it's so worth it, I think. I don't know. I'm Greek, so we grew up with yeah. multi-generations <laughs> around us. And for, for us, I, I always, I honestly think that I, I came to care about my, my mom so much because my grandmother was around when I was growing up. And so these were like the wise elders. And, and so I, I guess I have a different perspective, but... You know, I I thank you so much for being on the call. It's been a real honor. I know you're busy. You're welcome. Best of luck. And as a fellow Greek, uh, I am incredibly proud of what you're doing. Oh, thank thank you you for doing (laughs) it. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye, Dr. Lukasos. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear what you thought of today's program. You can email me at jana at agewise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com, and you can subscribe to the podcast and download any episodes for free at iTunes. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well. Age wise.